Well, thank you. Thank you both. Uh, heroic efforts. Uh, can we bow our heads and pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful stories uh, in your word. And we ask that as we attend to your word tonight, you would, well, we've already prayed, that you would change us by your spirit acting through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, before we start uh, properly, uh, I want to bring something to your attention, if I may. Um, over by the um, tea and coffee hatch uh, today, you will see a uh, uh, shelf of books, mostly on children's and youth work, and you're welcome to take any of them that you would like to at home with you. They're not all on children's and uh, youth work. They're uh, Lucy denies all knowledge. We don't quite know where they came from, but they've turned up. Um, and I've got a particular recommendation I want to uh, bring to you. Um, uh, perhaps if you take it uh, away with you tonight, you'd like to, uh, to let me know. Um, it's by Barbara Johnson, who was already, when she wrote this, the author of the best-selling Stick a Geranium in Your Hat and Be Happy. Um, and this, this uh, uh, she's the founder, by the way, of Spatula Ministries, um, and this, uh, this uh, volume is called uh, Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. <laughs> well, I commend that to you. There are moments when Hezekiah may have felt like he needed some splashes of joy in the cesspools of life. And it's Hezekiah that occupies us uh, this evening. Uh, what would it be like, I wonder, for David Cameron to stand up and say that we were going to fight the scale of public debt by trusting in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? What would it be like for William Hague to stand up and say that he was sure the answer to the problems of Japanese and uh, Chinese tension in the South China Sea, would be for them to turn to the way of the living God. Well, many people would be scandalized, and they would quickly be out of a job. Uh, the men in white coats would probably come for them. We know, or we think we know, what it would be like when politicians claim the backing of God. Quote, One thing is certain... Through the signing of the peace accords, God has granted a window of opportunity to spread the gospel message. Any idea which country's politician may have said that? Northern Ireland? Might be, it isn't. It was South Sudan, shortly before the troubles started up at the end of last year. South Sudan was founded, deliberately established, as a Christian uh, withdrawal from the largely Isla Islamic uh, country of Sudan. It was one of the rare times a country self-consciously establishes itself as a Christian country. On its flag, it has a star which is described as the Star of Bethlehem to reinforce that Christian devotion. But we all know what's happening there. 
The point is that we, you and I, have nothing in our modern lives to support the notion that Isaiah is describing in these chapters to us this evening. That close connection between the spiritual and political uh, life of a country is simply something we know nothing about. Yet these chapters ask us to believe it. Would you turn to them, please, if you've uh, closed uh, your uh, Bibles? And the chapters ask us to believe it as something credible. And I suggest that it is credible largely because we know what had gone wrong. It was the internal corruption and decadence of the nation that had led to its disasters. It had lost a kind of moral plumb line, and it was only going to be a recovery of that plumb line that would enable them to see everything else, including international politics, in a proper perspective. They had had a terrible king, Ahaz, who had made a bad situation worse. And Isaiah the prophet was told to go out with his son and to confront Ahaz in a particular place in Jerusalem, the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Uh, Isaiah, the goody, the prophet, was to confront Ahaz, the baddie, in that place. Uh, And in the time of Ahaz, they began to get news that the Assyrians, uh, far off to uh, the east, let me do what I normally do at this moment. Oh, that's no help at all. Okay, um, go, go, I love doing this. See if you're a lucky, it's one of the lucky people tonight. Go to the back and see if you've got a map. If you haven't, try and lean over the shoulder of someone who has. And probably go to, let's see, the, the, the map marked uh, Division of Canaan. There's only a few to choose from. Now, top right in that map almost, uh, northeast if you're feeling posh, um, is the city of Damascus. That is in Syria. Um, and the Assyrians who came from uh, a little bit further south and way over to the east, well beyond the eastern edge of the the next map. Um, uh, They had come uh, up through the desert, um, uh, and you you always had to kind of come up because it was the route of the the rivers. Uh, They'd come up through the desert. They'd conquered Damascus, and they'd conquered the northern capital of Samaria, And uh, Ahaz had only made it worse. He'd got involved in political alliances, ungodly ones, uh, panicked ones, and everything he did turned to dust and ashes. But his son, Hezekiah, Hezekiah wants to be a good and godly king. Now, tonight's story was a race through these two chapters. It would have been mad to try and take them as two Sundays, So we had to get it all in one, so we had it read very quickly, and I'm going to try and race through the story. There are really two rounds in a contest between Hezekiah and the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib. Chapter 36, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now, where was it that the the field commander of the armies just happened to stop? When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. There's a message. God remains sovereign. The kings may have to be confronted by Isaiah in a place, and when God brings about judgment, he will bring them back to the same place to say, remember, this is where I gave you a message, and I'm going to give you the reality this time. So the commander stops at the aqueduct and delivers a message to Hezekiah's officials. And this is the first phase, the first round of the two contests. First, there is this challenge that comes in verses 4 through to verse uh, 9 of uh, uh, of chapter 36. And the challenge comes from the king of Assyria, or the emperor, via his field commander, who's got the wonderful title of the Rabshakeh. Wouldn't you love to wake up tomorrow morning knowing, I'm a Rabshakeh? To me, it just sounds fantastic. Far more interesting than being a brigadier. But um, anyway, um, this is the message that is to be delivered via the officials to Hezekiah. The, the emperor's armies are in Lachish. That's about 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem. See, what they did, they'd come, they'd come over through Syria. They'd come up. Then they'd come down uh, through the north, and they'd come uh, up then from the south to kind of encircle Jerusalem. Some of the army has now come with the Rabshakeh to Jerusalem. Most of the army is left in Lachish. And Hezekiah's officials ride out to meet him. And the field commander gives them a warning, a very serious warning, to pass on to Hezekiah. And the warning is full of ironies, because actually all the threats in it contain lots of truth. At this stage, Hezekiah has kept his father's political allegiance with Egypt, and he's trusting to politics. So, verse 5 Rabshakeh says, you say you have strategy and military strength. Well, yes, Hezekiah did say exactly that because he was in alliance with Egypt. He is relying on Egypt. Look now, verse 6, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on. They were notorious Egyptians for breaking political allegiances. Worst of all, there is the taunt in verse 5 on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And Isaiah the prophet, time after time, has gone to Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, and said, on whom are you depending when you should be depending on God? On Yahweh. But Isaiah gave that warning, on whom are you depending, so that they would return to Yahweh their God. Sennacherib gives that warning, precisely so that they will lose all hope and give in to him. And Sennacherib knows their religion. Verse 7, and if you say to me that you're depending on the Lord, well, what use is that? Hezekiah's already torn down half of the places where that God might have been worshipped, and that was true as well. But Hezekiah 
wanting to follow the ways of God, had done what God said. And God had always said in the law of Israel that he wanted to be worshipped in Jerusalem and only in Jerusalem. He didn't want uh, sort of halfway stations set up all over the country between the true faith and sort of mixtures of fertility religions that would start up. That's exactly what had started up, and Hezekiah had closed them down. So if you're an old-school emperor like Zanacharib, you thought to yourself, well, the more places of worship, the more powerful this God must be. And if there's only one place of worship, it's pathetic. We then learn, verses, uh, what, 11 onwards, that the officials asked the commander to speak in Aramaic, the diplomatic language of the time, which prompts him, of course, to do the opposite. He switches to the local Hebrew and repeats the threats of his speech all the way from verses 12 through to 20. And now he's speaking Hebrew, he's speaking the language of the people. The people are all up on the walls of Jerusalem and he is uh, addressing them in their own language. And he's much uh, cruder now in his threats. We catch the pride of the Assyrian emperor and his Uh, attempt to to haul in the people. So verse 16. Every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. It's not going to be that bad if you let me in. Uh, uh, There will come a time, verse 17, when I come and take you to a land like your own. And it's going to be nice, honest. It's going to be a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards believe that and you'll believe anything. But he really seals his fate with the claim that Yahweh is as feeble as other gods are. Don't, verse 18, don't let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the land hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Of course not. So don't trust to Hezekiah. Well, the people make no reply. And verse 22, uh, they go and report to Hezekiah, who tears his clothes, puts on uh, sackcloth and ashes, and goes into the temple. It is now the beginning of chapter 37. And he sends them to Isaiah, the prophet, for advice. And he asks Isaiah through them to intercede Interesting now. With Yahweh, your God. Verse 4 of chapter 37. Uh, Twice. It may be that the Lord your God will hear. Maybe he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. He is the living God. But for Hezekiah, he's also, when talking to Isaiah, the Lord your God. Now, every time we do this kind of Old Testament passage... I always want to explain something because there's always someone who's never heard it, and it's important. When you see if something like um, verse 4 there, and the word Lord is in little uh, capital letters, uh, I've absolutely no idea why our translations persist in this habit, but they do. Uh, It's a, a tradition of Hebrew scriptures that when they came to the name of the the name of God, which was Yahweh, 
They, that, the, the name itself was too holy, so they didn't use the name, and they simply inserted four letters, which meant the Lord. So they didn't use the name, but they used the Lord. But the text originally says the name, Yahweh. So whenever you see the Lord, it's a personal name. It's an intimate name, the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Uh, sometimes older translations, if you're familiar, may say uh, Jehovah. Well, well uh, he sends them off to uh, Isaiah, and he is acknowledging there's some kind of dependence here on Yahweh, and he wants uh, Yahweh to uh, stand up for the sake of his own name. And Isaiah sends them back. Verse 5, Isaiah said to them, Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Zanacharib is going to withdraw. The prayer for deliverance from Hezekiah results in a promise of deliverance from Isaiah. And that's what happens as the first element of this story closes. The field commander had to withdraw from Jerusalem with his army because something else was going on. Over in Egypt, the king, Tirhaka, was getting uppity. The Assyrians thought they'd kept uh, the Egyptian kings in place, but Tihaka was getting uppity and wanted to have a fight. So he was moving out of Egypt up... It's like a game of risk, this, by the way, if you haven't already uh, grasped it. Uh, Tihaka was moving up through the territory and uh, just beginning to make the Assyrian king a little uneasy. So he decided to move a little away from Egypt, moved up the road, unfortunately, even closer to Jerusalem. So what happened is that uh, the smaller army withdraws from Jerusalem, but only in order to join a larger army which has come closer. That's the close of the first phase, the first round of the contest. But so that Hezekiah doesn't get above himself, the emperor now sends a second communication. And this is the second phase, the second round of the contest. The second letter is shorter Sharper, to the point, there's no more politics in this now, no more Egypt. This is all about Yahweh. Don't let Yahweh deceive you, says verse 10 of uh, chapter 37, Zanacharib. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, don't let the God you depend on deceive you. Yahweh is being accused of deception. The other gods couldn't save their cities, and he's not going to be able to save Jerusalem. And just as the challenge was shorter and sharper, Hezekiah's response is clearer and sharper. There's no request to Isaiah to do the praying. Hezekiah now gets on with the praying himself. Goes straight to the temple, spreads out the letter, verse 14, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, verse 15. There's no, it may be that the Lord your God will hear this time. Rather, It's verse 17, give ear, O Lord, Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Listen to all the words Zanacharib has sent to insult the living God. So much of what Zanacharib has said is true, but those gods were gods of wood and stone, and only you, Yahweh, are the real thing. Deliver us. Why? so that all the kingdoms, verse 20, on earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. Where the tone earlier had been, this is a day of distress and shame and rebuke, we now hear Hezekiah say to Yahweh, God, 
come on, up and at him. Hezekiah seems finally to have come to a true faith in Yahweh himself, the Lord Almighty, whose position is unassailable. Verse 16, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. This is real. This is clearly coming from the guts of Hezekiah now. And in verses 30 through to 32, Hezekiah gets a promise of miracle. He he gets um, uh, word, unexpected word, from uh, Isaiah the prophet. The land has been ravaged and scorched, verses 30 to 32, but now there's going to be enough growing wild that without sowing, it'll keep you for a couple of years, and then you can sow and reap again. You're going to be okay, Hezekiah, and you will know that it's me behind it because of the miracle I'm going to work with the land, because when invaders have come through your land, you're not supposed to be able to live off it for a couple of years. As for the emperor, he's going to have to slink off the way he came, verses 33 to 35. And then we get this appalling and brief account. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Think of the avenging angel who flew over the Hebrew slaves and their owners in Egypt. That angel goes out and puts to death thousands of men. How? We don't know. Sickness, rebellion, we don't know. It doesn't matter. Sennacherib goes home, and as we heard in the reading, he's assassinated by his own sons. Hezekiah has grown in the story, especially as we get to round two. From one who was on the fence and hoped Isaiah's prayer might save him, to one who prays for the glory of Yahweh to be revealed. Sennacherib, on the other hand, the emperor, is diminished in the story, from mighty warlord to a corpse cut down in the temple of an idol. That is the story. It raises all kinds of questions, and I want to tackle just three of them as we close, because most of the time has to be spent on the story. First, is it possible that it happened? Is it possible that God made Zanacharib withdraw using the politics of Egypt and then final withdrawal using the angel in some way to bring death? Well, we have to ask why we might believe it couldn't happen. Is it because it's politics? You may have heard the story. I certainly heard it often enough, of those who uh, believed when the evacuation from Dunkirk had to happen during the Second World War, uh, the calm, the seas were unnaturally calm for the evacuation as people were taken off by a fleet of small boats from the northern French coast. And it was widely held at the time that it was a miracle of God's intervention. They were utterly vulnerable to attack, but the calm seas made it possible for them to get back to England safely. It's politics. Do we doubt it because it's politics or simply because it's a miracle? But I was writing down the text from notes this afternoon, and through my inbox, I had news of a miracle. can't say much about it because it's not my story to tell. 
and it may come out over time for another to tell. But a miracle over here in one place created a change of heart over there, and a great thing has happened. I was in much distress about it, but God has stepped in and I'm overjoyed. Why can he not have done so for Hezekiah? After all, we're close enough to the season of miracles, to angels and stars, and to incarnation. Secondly, why might God do it? Well, it's relevant that we're coming to the end of a section of Isaiah as he records God's activity through the kings of the nation and sometimes in spite of the kings of the nation. Yahweh will be the sovereign Lord God, creator, savior, judge. That cannot be avoided And the story is recorded to show to what lengths he will go to ensure that his name is properly upheld and worshipped. The Word of God, who becomes incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, was, we are told, in the beginning with God, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was creator. He comes as saviour to rescue his people, not this time, from their external enemy, but from the real enemy of their sin within. And he is the risen Lord who will come to judge all humankind. Why would we believe any of that? Well, one clue might be that God has always been completely consistent in his revelation of himself. This that we have in our story tonight, this is what God is. What God does, he makes, he saves. He judges. The mission of Christ to us and the mission of Christ through us is easier to credit when we remember that it's always been the mission of God on this, his planet. Thirdly, what can I take away personally? Well, I reckon that our God being a miracle worker and our God being consistently maker, savior, and judge are all fairly personal things. But if you really want personal, look at Hezekiah. He's a great king in comparison with his father, But he starts off here tonight with mixed motives. Next week, we'll see him behave like a complete twit. But he does come to a right relationship with God. Look at the personal naming in that great prayer in in, uh, chapter 37 and verse 14. Well, 15, I suppose. O Yahweh Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God. You have made heaven and earth. Verse 17, give ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Listen to all the words Zanacharib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Yahweh, that the Assyrian kings, yada, 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 verse 20, now, O Yahweh, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. He comes as close as any Old Testament character does to calling God Abba. There is an intimacy of relationship now, to which he's been driven by circumstances. But the circumstances might have made him go one way or the other. They made Ahaz, his father, go towards political alliance. They made Hezekiah go away from it towards Yahweh. And perhaps I'm feeling it because of that miracle I mentioned this afternoon. Circumstances could have driven this person one way or another. But that they drove them this way rather than that, as an email witnesses, is the work of God. 
Hezekiah finds the same. Perhaps just when he thought he was safe, because there'd been that withdrawal at the end of phase one, the second letter arrives, and he could have been driven into deep despair. But what it actually does is drives him to a deeper faith in Yahweh, his God. Now, perhaps you've got something going on at the moment, some suffering. Perhaps you are finding yourself in the cesspools of life. Perhaps there is a cry in your heart to make something stop. Now, those circumstances, whatever they are, they can drive you closer to God or away from God, and that choice is up to you. The cross of even Jesus Christ, appalling as it was, could have driven him further into relationship with God, or surely any normal person would have been driven further away. Look what I've done for you, he could have said, and this is what I get. The circumstances can push us either way. And the will of God is always that we're pushed deeper into relationship with him. Yes, this kind of sovereignty over world affairs can happen. Yes, God's character in his sovereignty is always consistent as maker and saviour and judge. And yes, the circumstances that push each one of us can push us as we determine closer to finding God as he is or further away. Let's pray. I want to pray a very short prayer because I know we're going to reflect uh, in a moment or two and uh, El will introduce that, but let's pray. Lord God, these are, these are long stories. They cover a long stretch of time with huge clashing forces that aren't what mostly occupies us in our waking life. But please give us renewed faith that if you're a God who can deal with these great, big, clashing forces, then you must be a God who can deal with us in our circumstances. For we ask it in Jesus' name.